Welcome to Inspire Churches Podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or to donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Why don't you open with me to John chapter 1 and just kind of save it there. Um, We'll get there in a little bit. Um, John chapter 1. For those of us who are here, for for those of you here for the first time, I'd like to welcome you. Um, And for those of you that are maybe are kind of... Um, maybe been out of town for a little bit or just kind of kind of entering in. For the last three weeks, uh, we've been in our Christmas series, and we've called it Light uh, in the Dark. And so just to kind of update you, to kind of get you to where we're going to go today, uh, in week one, we discussed how many during the time of the prophet Isaiah turned away from God, and they began to look towards what the prophet calls the things of the earth for comfort in times of deep darkness. And so they, visit, they visited like mediums and necromancers and began to speak with the dark and look to the stars uh, to determine their hope, and they turned away from God. And so the prophet Isaiah tells us that they turned to the things of the earth rather than the things of God. And then in week two, uh, we saw that although many turned uh, to the things of the earth for comfort, um, there were a faithful few who looked to God's word, amen? And in God's word, they found hope, and that hope became a light to them during times of darkness. And it was to those faithful few that the prophet Isaiah spoke of a coming baby boy who would one day, ready, break every tool of oppression and burn every garment of warfare. It was to those faithful few that the prophet Isaiah said, continue to look ahead because there is one coming who will break slavery and burn warfare. And to this day, this prophecy is still one of the most popularly quoted prophecies during the time of Advent. Um, And the verse, this prophecy ends uh, with Isaiah proclaiming, for unto us a child is born, to us a son has been given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and I love this part, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So today... We're going to move ahead. We're going to move from the prophet Isaiah to the apostle John this morning. And I want to kind of just put this in perspective for you. Isaiah looked ahead and he prophesied to the coming of a great light 700 years before the birth of Christ. The apostle John looks back and reflects on that same great light's coming a hundred years after the death of Jesus. And so the prophet Isaiah looks ahead. The apostle Paul now looks back and begins to reflect. And so before we get into this, can we pray? And then we'll jump in heavily, Father. You're so faithful. You're so good. And during this Christmas season, we humbly enter in, keenly aware that there are those in this room that are celebrating, and there are those in this room that are suffering. Lord, we respect and celebrate with those 
that are experiencing victory in this season. But we also sit with and we mourn with those that are suffering in this season. Christmas sometimes is not the greatest of time for many. And as the church, we understand that. But we look ahead to the hope of Jesus Christ when he'll make all things new. So, Father, I pray that your word would not come back void. Speak through me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So every good biography has an origin story. And this is no different for Jesus in the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John. All three of these biographies of the life of Christ, they contain genealogies. And these genealogies reflect the author's intention in writing the biography. Let me explain. In the book of Matthew, Matthew writes his book to a Jewish audience. And because he's writing his book to a Jewish audience, Matthew is mostly concerned with convincing them that Jesus is the Messiah, their sacred scriptures foretold. So when a Gentile would read Matthew, he wouldn't quite understand Matthew because Matthew's not speaking to the Gentile, he's speaking to the Jews. Are you with me? So Matthew will pay close attention to Jesus' genealogy through his father, Joseph. Why? Because Matthew, through Joseph, will prove that Jesus is not only a descendant of King David, but he's also a descendant of the Jewish nation's father, Abraham. So if you jump into Matthew, you can read through that genealogy. Most of us skip it. But ultimately, you'll see King David. Well, you'll see King David, and ultimately, it will be traced back all the way to Abraham. You can understand why the Jews would need to see that. Amen? Now, if you look to Luke, Luke writes his biography to a Gentile named Theophilus. Now, he seeks... Not just to write an um, orderly account of Christ's life. He actually interviews eyewitnesses. He seeks not just to write an orderly account, but he desires to show that Jesus was the Savior of the world. So he'll pay close attention to the genealogy of Jesus' mother, Mary. Why? In doing so, he'll trace Jesus' ancestry beyond Abraham all the way back to Adam. Now you might be thinking, what other genealogies are left for the Apostle John? It seems like both Matthew and Luke covered it all. But after spending almost every day with Jesus for three years, and after being an eyewitness to his miracles, after being an eyewitness to his death, and being an eyewitness to his resurrection, now John is penning this biography at 80 years old. And he writes his gospel, are you ready? Not to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, not to convince the world that Jesus is its savior, but to convince you and I that Jesus is without a doubt the God of the universe. Let me say that again. Matthew is trying to convince the Jews that he's their Messiah foretold of in the Old Testament scriptures. Luke will try to convince the world and Theophilus will show Theophilus that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. But John is going beyond what Matthew and what Luke want to do and wants to tell you, I'm going to tell you that this man that I knew personally, 
He is the God of the universe. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, what's this have to do with Christmas? Well, if we're going to understand the meaning of Christmas, we're going to have to go all the way back to the beginning. Not back 100 years from John to the manger, and not back 700 years from the manger to the prophet Isaiah, but we're going to have to go all the way back to the beginning of time, literally to the creation itself. And so Matthew and Luke supply us with a human genealogy, amen? But John introduces us to something even more spectacular than that. John gives us a divine genealogy, or at least what I am calling a divine genealogy. Will you go with me to John chapter 1, and we're going to read five verses, verses 1 through 5, and we'll have it up here on the slides. Um, But also, if you have it in your Bibles, I'd love for you to follow along. Uh, John chapter 1, 1 through 5. You ready? Let's do it. You ready? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, some of you might have a particular uh, translation that says, has not comprehended it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So for the rest of today's story, I want to focus on two central themes And so if you just want to keep ahead with me, we're going to hit these two themes, the pre-existing word, and I'll explain to you a little bit of what that means, and we'll finish with the undefeated light. Let's start with the pre-existing word. Now, if you notice, the opening lines of John are deep with theological meaning. In fact, John 1 is really dense and really deep with theological meaning. Um, And it would take more than one day to be able to jump through and attack each theme appropriately. So I'm going to do my best to make sure that we attack the theme and lift Jesus up. There's no doubt that in John's mind, Jesus was not only Messiah and Savior, but he was literally the God of the universe. You see, in eternity past, now try to stay with me here. In eternity past, there was nothingness and darkness. But because our minds are finite, our minds are limited, right? They can't fathom going back that far. Have you ever tried to sit and think of eternity? Have you ever tried to sit and think that God didn't have a maker? He just always was and always is. Have you ever, maybe if you want to try to go to sleep at night, just begin to think about that and your brain will kind of explode because the human mind is not meant to go that far because we're limited, we're finite. Amen? So John stretches our imagination as far back as it can possibly go. And then he introduces his gospel by saying, in the beginning, Jesus was already there. But you notice John didn't use Jesus' name. He uses word. So what does John mean when he refers to the pre-existing Jesus as the word? You see, when John wrote the opening lines of his gospel, 
I don't know if you saw it, and I'm sure some of you did. He was actually recalling the Old Testament creation story. Did you see it? Let me show you. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, do you remember? It says this, what? In the beginning, God. In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in Genesis 1.1, the first four or five words is, in the beginning, God. Now, if you look to John 1.1, he says, in the beginning, word. Now, I want you to notice, for John, the God of Genesis and the word of his gospel are the same. And then John adds commentary. He says, the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, even though John uses God and the word interchangeably, John also distinguishes between the two. Are you with me? John reveals that in eternity past, at least two persons existed, and he calls one of them word. Now, let's continue in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, and we'll have it up for you. And we're going to read verses 2 and 3 of the creation story. It says this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Watch this. And God said, and everybody knows this, let there be light. Now I'm going to get a little nerdy, and I'm going to get a little excited about this. So if you're not as passionate, just stay with me. Stay with me. Um, But this excites me. In Genesis... God's method of creating involved 10 acts of speaking. Do you remember? 10 acts of speaking, which God would say, let there be, and there was. 10 acts of speaking. Now, God's word, according to the creation narrative, is the means by which he brings order. God's word is the means by which he brings order into chaos shape into shapelessness and light into darkness his word brings emptiness and nothingness into something in fact the very first words uttered by God recorded in human history is the great command for great light to illuminate and vanquish deep darkness whoa You like that? (laughs) I do. By referring to Jesus as the pre-existing word, John is not only calling Jesus God, but he's also revealing to us that Jesus is the means by which deep darkness is utterly vanquished. So when John who's not writing this on his own. The Holy Spirit is inspiring him. When John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chooses to call Jesus' word, let me tell you why he chooses the word. Well, number one, because the word is an expression. Let me explain. Like my words are conveying to you my invisible thoughts, So Jesus is the perfect 
and pure expression of the invisible God. You see, people won't know what you're thinking unless you communicate it to them. Your thoughts are invisible, and so you need to find a way to communicate. Otherwise, your thoughts remain invisible. And so like my thoughts are invisible, God is invisible. No one has ever seen God. And so humanity has a problem. We're left to do one of two things. Are you ready? One of two things. All of, all of mankind does one of two things with their religion and their belief. They either create a God in their own image or they look up for a revelation from God so they can understand who he is. If God is infinite and you are finite, there's no way that you could ever understand him. So the only way that you could ever understand him is if he reveals himself to you. Otherwise, you begin to create a God in your own image. And that's what the Greeks did. Their gods were having sex with each other. They were fighting each other. You remember that? They're coming down. Having, their gods were about as human as can be. All they were doing was placing their, their, their who they are into the gods. So when John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chooses to call him word, first of all, word is an expression. Jesus literally expresses perfectly and purely who the invisible God is. Do you remember what Jesus said to Philip? <laughs> he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip says, just show us God and we'll be good. Like you've done, Philip, uh, Philip says to Jesus, you've done a lot of stuff, right? Philip's a moron. I get it. I understand that personally. But he says, he says, come on, Jesus, you've been doing all these things, man. If you just show us God, just show us the Father, man, that'll take the cake. Jesus is like, I've walked on water. I've raised the dead. What else do you want me to do? And Jesus says, man, Phil, how long have I not been with you? And he says this more lovingly and caringly than probably I'm saying. But he says, man, if you've what, seen me, you've seen the Father. The word is an expression. Number two, the word in Genesis also is the means by which God what? Creates. Can you imagine just for a moment that epic moment when God said, let there be light? In fact, my best friend Marv's here a long time ago. He told me, I don't like when people use awesome because I feel like that word is used way too much. I've always stood with me, so I try not to use awesome anymore just because of that. But this has got to be an awesome moment. Like, this can't be overused. This can't be understated. This is epic. This is awesome. Do you remember? Can, well, you don't remember, but can you imagine that awesome moment when God said, let there be light? The moment God spoke, are you ready for this? Current reality encountered some kind of glory explosion. And immediately, the current reality found itself totally and utterly redefined. John is saying that wasn't some kind of force or energy that flowed out of God, but that was a literal person who was God and who was with God in the beginning. Finally, number three, why did John use the word word? Well, the Greek word, word, Greek is what he's writing in, actually is translated into logos or logos. It just depends on who your Greek teacher is. But that word logos, here's what it means. It means reason or logic. Hang with me. Here's a little story. Any people, philosophy majors in here? I'm going to do my best. You could correct me later, but this is what I believe. Long before the birth of Christ, there lived a Greek philosopher, a Greek thinker named 
Heraclitus. He believed the world was in a constant state of strife and change. So he asked the question, as all great philosophers do, just sit pondering life. <laughs> he, had, he had a lot of time. He asked the question, is there meaning to it all? Is there any purpose? Is there any pattern? Remember, this is before the birth of science. Is there any pattern? Is there any logic to it all? And although he believed that there was a logos or a logos that held it all together and that he would ultimately conclude that humans would always prove to be unable to understand that logos. No doubt this deeply affected him because from what I've read, he was given the nickname the weeping philosopher. And I would be really sad most of the time if I walked around reeling that the universe or that my being uh, had no meaning. Or maybe it did, but I could just never figure it out. Now, centuries later, there lived a Jew in Egypt, another deep thinker, and his name was Philo. Great dog names, by the way. He studied Heraclitus, and he agreed that there was some kind of logos. You ready? But he also knew his Hebrew scriptures, amen? And he recalled how the world was spoken into existence by Yahweh. And so these words, the words that God used, Philo would conclude were the logos that Heraclitus was talking about. Heraclitus could never realize what the Logos was. But Philo says, I know it was the word of God spoken. Now, there's no doubt John sees himself as finalizing this thought that had begun hundreds of years before him. Hear me out. John agrees with Heraclitus and says, yes, there is a Logos that brings meaning to it all. John also agrees with Philo and says, yes, that logos that brings meaning to it all was there with God at the beginning. But John adds the most important piece to the puzzle when he says later on in chapter 1, verse 14. Are you ready? That word, that word that Heraclitus has been pondering, that word that Philo has been trying to understand That word that you've been searching for, he became flesh. The Greek word for flesh is carne. Anybody like carne asada? (laughs) Amen. That's what you're going after lunch, right? After this. It literally means that word that pre-existed at the beginning one day put on carne. He put on meat. And then he says, that word put on carne asada, and guess what? He dwelt among us, and I love what dwelt means. Dwelt says to pitch a tent. He didn't come in in a palace. He didn't come in in a mansion, but he pitched a tent. He didn't put up this, this castle, but he put up a tent. And then John says, 
We have seen his glory as an eyewitness. Can you believe him right now? I, I've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. To the weeping philosopher trying to find meaning to all the strife in life, John says, I found him. To a world hungry for some kind of encounter with the divine, John says, I've found him. And to the person who feels like their world is chaotic and dead, full of darkness, John says, I found the light that can radically redefine your current reality. I want you to listen. What the word did for the earth in Genesis 1, the word now does to the human heart in John 1. And I think one of the greatest encouragements that a believer can hold on to in this season, if you're living in darkness, is what John has to say in verse 5. Listen to what he says. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not, will not cannot, never will overcome it. Jesus is the undefeated light of the world. He's the undefeated light of the world. And I want to make this plain to you this morning. I want to conclude today's message. Don't get too excited with that word, conclude. By sharing with you three realities that I want you to be aware of during this Christmas season. Will will you enter in for these last couple of minutes? It won't be that much longer. Will you enter in this Christmas season and will you walk away with these three realities and reflect upon them as you wait for Christmas Day? And I'll give them to you ahead of time. Reality number one is the reality of warfare. Reality number two is the reality of rejection. And reality number three is the gift of life. And I promise we'll finish on the gift of life. Three realities. The first reality is the reality of warfare. Although verse 5 is ultimately one of the greatest encouragements that you and I can have as a believer, verse 5 is also assuming warfare. If light is an invading force, then you can expect that darkness will do whatever it can to repel the invasion. Anytime something invades something's territory... Most of the time, there's going to be warfare. And if you just read the Gospels, warfare is all over the Gospels. Warfare is all over the life of Christ. And if he's God and he has to go through warfare, 
then you and I, we have to expect the reality of warfare. Jesus' stories, if you read in the Gospels, they're filled with clashes and confrontations. Not with just the religiosity of man, but also with sickness, disease, death, and the demonic. In fact, every time you see Christ performing a miracle in the Gospels, it's spiritual warfare. Whenever you see him healing the sick, it's the kingdom of God invading the kingdom of hell. And where death and disease would reign and sickness would be the result in Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 of the fall of the sin. Jesus would come and whatever sin did to creation in Genesis 3, Christ would restore in the gospels. Are you with me? Do you get this story? And so when you see him healing the sick and when you see him raising the dead, you're seeing spiritual warfare taking place. And also the kingdom of God is being prophesied to the men of the world and saying this one day, sickness and disease and death will no longer have a hold. You're beginning to see a glimpse of what's to come, a glimpse, a glimpse. This should excite us, but it should sober us. Why? Because even though we have the light, we're still aware that our reality is filled with warfare. Anybody feel that during this time? Is anybody in here feeling warfare during this time? Can you feel yourself being tempted to go and get comfort from places outside of the word of God because warfare is so intense in your life? Are you dealing with sickness? Are you dealing with death during this time? Secondly, the reality of rejection. Some translations suggest that the darkness, remember I said this, could not what? Comprehend the light. In other words, people can see the light, but it does not mean that they'll understand it, that they'll get it, or that they'll even want it. You see, in the Gospel of John, are you ready? Light is Christ, and Christ is truth. And from his life and from his words comes the truth of God, perfectly expressed. That is light. And the light, what? Shines on what? Man. And so his life, the very, his very being and existence, his words, is shining on man. And darkness cannot overcome it. In other words, darkness can't beat it. But darkness can't comprehend it neither. In the Gospel of John, light will not only refer to Christ and his truth, but light will also refer to us being able to believe. And darkness will be to those who do not believe. Darkness means unbelief. You see, for the rest of John's Gospel, he'll describe sin not as immorality, right? Whenever I say sin, you all automatically think, oh man, I did something wrong yesterday. John's gospel will go beyond transgressions, your daily transgressions. John's gospel will ultimately tell us that sin is the rejection or the unbelief of the light that has been made known to mankind. 
And so I'm happy to say, I celebrate this, but this is also sober for everyone in this room. Today, the word of God has illuminated you. Consider yourself woke this morning. You've heard the word. You've been introduced to the light. You know his name. But you can still choose to walk in unbelief. If you decide to remain in the dark regarding the identity of Christ, you're going to miss the gift of life. You're going to miss the gift of life. And, I, and I'm, my conclusion is concluding with the gift of life. You see, John says in verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And I want you to know today, this morning, that just like Jesus is a matter of light and dark, he is also a matter of life and death. This is why I became a pastor. This is it. Right here. It's undeniable. All humanity must decide what you think about Jesus. All humanity must decide. What do you think about Jesus? Who is he to you? Life in John means eternal life. And you know, most of us, when we hear eternal life, we think about heaven, don't we? When you hear eternal life, you think about living forever, living beyond the grave. And I don't want to ruin that for you because that is part of what this means. But if that's all you know about eternal life, then you're missing some key elements. John is telling us that Jesus is life. What do I mean by that? You and I, our existence is dependent upon outside things. You get that? Like you need oxygen. You need water. You need food. You, you depend on outside things to live. Christ depends on nothing outside of him. He is the embodiment of life. There's nothing that he needs that exists outside of him. He is life. He is life. So the only way that you and I can even talk about experiencing life can even talk about experiencing eternal life after we die is if we first embrace the life of Christ as our own. This is so important. I, Philip, can only claim to have life as I claim to have union with Christ. So I'm going to answer a question you may be having today. How do I know that I have this kind of life? How can I be sure that I have this life? Well, Scripture says repent and believe the gospel. What does that mean? It means you must first come to the Scriptures and come to Christ and admit that you're a sinner. And that's not very hard. I think most of you in here would agree that you don't do anything right. Even on your best days, there's an element of pride driving you to do something right. Some of you are going to go give a gift card. You're going to make sure everybody looks at you to do it. And so you're going to do right, but it's going to be full of pride. So you can feel better about your Christmas season because you gave something away. 
Here's what God's telling all of humanity, even in all its efforts to do good. It's religious piety is still full of pride. So your religion or your immorality won't get you to Christ. So you say, well, what do I do? Well, there's a third option. You have to repent and admit you're a sinner. And then you have to believe that Jesus Christ is not, the Jewish, not just the Jewish Messiah, that he's not just the Savior of the world, but that he is God of the universe. And no other gods can have that place. Back to the question. How do I know if I have this life? How do I, how do I know if I have this belief? Are you ready for this? Belief produces obedience. I can't get around it. If I were to say obedience produces belief, that would be religion. And I would be preaching rules. But I'm not. I'm preaching a response to Christ. And in that response, our worship is obedience. You see... Before I knew Christ, I knew, the, I knew the God of my parents, and I appreciated him from afar. But you ready for this? But his commands were burdensome in my life. I could attend church. I could worship. But when I left, what he asked of me was a burden in my life and I couldn't sustain beyond a Sunday but now after knowing that life something has changed a light has shined are you ready for this and I've been illuminated and his commands no longer are burdens but they become delights I recognize this is heavy for many of you because while I'm preaching this, you're stuck in sin. This is heavy. This is heavy, but can I speak a word of encouragement to some of you? If you're battling with sin, if you're struggling with sin, if you hate your sin, then there is a transformation taking place because there was a time when you were in the dark and you would enter into your sin and that you would love it. But now there's something you hate about it. Some of you just want to quit this thing. Like, I just want to leave church. I just want to leave Christ. It's hard because I can't live in. I can't live out. But I want to invite you to know that darkness cannot overcome the light. And this is the story of Christmas. The light has come. And darkness has not overcome it. But you must repent and believe in the gospel. And he must become Lord of your life and all other idols must fall to the floor. And here's the thing is you must be growing in sanctification. You must be growing in sanctification. You must be moving closer to Christ. Someone asked me, what do you want from your church? I said, I want people who are moving closer to Christ, further away from sin and telling their neighbors about it. That's it. What do you want? I want people moving closer to Christ, further from sin and telling their neighbors from, about him. God, the creator of the universe, the one who shined light in the dark, he put on carne, he pitched a tent among us, and he started a new creation, 
And to anyone who would believe, his light would shine in their dark hearts, giving them meaning where there was once meaninglessness, giving them relationship with God when there was once enemy with God, and finally making all things new. And this is it. John 1 is a remake of Genesis 1. It's a creation story. Only this time, there's a new creation being enacted, and it's Christ who's initiating it. So you and I, during Christmas, we look back, and we reflect on the beauty of the Word made flesh, and we bow down and we worship. And we also look ahead to when he comes back one day and finishes his new creation project. All things will be made new. No more death, no more sickness, no more demons, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. And we await for that, and we sing for that, and we long for it. That's what Christmas is. And so I beg you, and I'm going to pray in just a moment. Will you lay down your Christmas shopping list this week? And will you give this God glory? Will you give him time? Will you respond to his gospel? Will you love him because he first loved you? Let's pray. All over this room, there's nobody in here this morning that can say, I am perfect. All of us have fallen short. All of us has fell way short. But I just declare in this room and at this church that we would be lovers of Christ. Be lovers of his gospel, lovers of his word, and that that love would compel us to respond, not from a place of obligation, but from a place of desire. May we delight in your word. May we delight in your commandments. May we delight in obedience to you. Lord, I pray if there's anybody right now fighting the battle with sin, feeling condemnation, Lord, I pray that they would repent and they would get back to where you'd want them to be. They would believe the gospel and the beauty of the gospel would compel them to walk away from those things that hold them back, that harm them and hurt them and want to destroy them. For you came to give life and life more abundantly. So Lord, I pray all over this room, every family, every single individual represented here father we give you honor we give you glory we lift up your name may your name be lifted high and if there's anyone in here today that doesn't know jesus christ or you're just so unsure you're so confused and i would invite you to repent and believe that he's not just the jewish messiah that he's not just some good man or some cool teacher or some prophet that Jesus is God of the universe and that you would find a mature believer that you would call them this week and that you would sit down with them and you would tell them I gave my life to Christ but I want to know what to do next so father I just pray Lord this would be a place where your people would be edified and those who are lost in darkness would come to find you Jesus Lord bless us this week as we leave and we come back to you father Help us to be a witness to our neighbors, to our co-workers, for your honor, your glory. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you guys. I love you so much. And have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.